right, we are in the book of the Revelation, and we've come, we've come to the best part. We've come to the that which you have been waiting for, but the problem with that is this. You all know this part. It's kind of like speaking God's word at Christmas. You've heard this story before, and it loses something in the familiarity. But, but you know, there's, there's, there's more here than what we know. And because we all know that, well, the story of the revelation, the purpose of the revealing is to, remind, is to, is to tell God, or John, and through John to tell the churches, and not only those churches, but our church to tell us, to remind us that in the midst of trouble, in the midst of opposition, our Lord is coming. His word is sure. It's real, and it is true, and what we don't yet see, but we grab hold of by faith, will one day be our experienced reality. And we see that, we, we step into that in chapter 19. But you know, and the best part, the thing about knowing something about the book of Revelation is that it is true that the, in the end, Jesus wins. In the end, he does return just as he had promised. And he does take all that's wrong and make it right. And that which we've longed for will be realized. But you know that in some sense already. You've picked up on that along the way, even as we've been going through this book. And what I want to do in Revelation chapter 19 is I want to point to some of the other features that knowing the big picture, Jesus is coming, which is at the center of the chapter, and we will not pass that by, but there's some other aspects around it that will add some detail, that'll color in some of the edges, that'll help us to see more here, perhaps, than we've seen before. In Jesus' return, heaven, heaven goes wild, okay? Heaven breaks out in song and rejoicing and hallelujah and singing. That's, that's the moment that Handel was capturing in the hallelujah chorus. It's this instant. And what is heaven so excited about? I mean, they've known this all along. They haven't been as we are wondering, Lord, how long Jesus, the, the resurrected king, has been in their midst. And yet, when the time for his coming has come, heaven goes wild. What makes heaven sing? And who is this promised and coming king? What do we learn about heaven's joy? What do we learn about the king in his coming? That's what I want to focus on in chapter 19. So let's turn to Revelation chapter 19. We'll read the first, oh, we'll read the first 11 verses and find out. Let's, we'll, we'll analyze. We'll talk about that song of heaven a little bit. In Revelation chapter 19, after this I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and authority belong to our God, for his judgments are true and they are just. For he has judged that great prostitute who 
corrupted the earth with her immorality, Babylon from chapter 17 and 18, that whole system that has, has uh, worked all through church history in one form after another. And he has avenged on her the blood, the suffering, the persecution of his servants. Once more they cried out, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Ongoing air pollution, isn't that wonderful? And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen. Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. Like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For that fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And now a little commentary. Verse 9, the angel said to me, write this. Don't miss this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper, the marriage banquet of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And I fell down at his feet. To worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that, for I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What is it that makes heaven sing? That which makes heaven sing is why we sing. That their joy is actually our joy also. So we'll learn something of our own song as we look into the details of their song. First of all, in the, in the opening verses, God's salvation and glory and power or authority are revealed. Heaven rejoices that finally, out in the open, clear and obvious and experienced by all, are the salvation and glory and powerful authority of God that they have known. His glory is that his judgment is true and it is faithful. There's no corruption in it. There's no self-serving in it. His power and authority is shown in his ability to end all of the corruption that has been ongoing on the earth. And his salvation is seen in vindicating his own. Those who have been cast aside and counted, as Paul describes, as the off-scouring of the world. The crud on the pot you would scrub off and wash down the drain. Those whom the world counted as nothing, but God has counted as everything and gave his own son for them. And he rescues them and lifts them. His salvation is seen. And when God acts as his king now finally fully comes, none will say in his judgment that God is unfair because his His his. Glory is that his judgment is faithful and true. None will say, why doesn't God do something? 
because he does. His authority is revealed. None will say, where is God's promised salvation? As Peter describes, they might say to you now, well, where is the promise of his coming? All the while we've heard of Christians say, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming, and yet he does not come. That, that the world continues from the first until now just as it's always been, as it always has been, so it will also be. Well, they forget God intervened before in Noah's flood. Cataclysmic consequences over all the earth, and he has promised he will intervene again. And so he shall. They will no longer say, where is the promise of his coming? Because here is the promise of his salvation realized. And when he comes, verses 2 and 3, his judgments are true and just. And he judges that great prostitute, the corruption on the earth, the reign of sin and Satan is ended. It is done. This is the purpose of his coming. This has been the purpose of his salvation. Ever since Genesis 3, God has been moving us toward this moment when our hope will be realized, our salvation will be seen. In Daniel chapter 9 and verse 24, Daniel is told there's 490 years, there are 77s determined to accomplish a particular purpose of God. And after 69 of those seven-year periods, Messiah will be cut off. And some, some um, historian researchers have, have um, researched that down to the very day of that 69th seven. Jesus is crucified in Jerusalem. Messiah is cut off. And then the last seven year, the 70th seven, the last seven year period has been this, this tribulation that we have been walking through, this time period of seven years in the book of the Revelation. And the purpose of those 77s, according to Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, is to finish the transgression that began in the Garden of Eden, to put an end to sin to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Do you not long for that? Would you not long for the day, oh Lord, how long? Can it be soon? Can it be today that you would put an end to sin? That you would now bring in everlasting righteousness? We long for that even in our own experience. Not only our experience in life and in the midst of the world, but we long for an end of sin even in our own lives and hearts, do we not? And it is coming with his coming. When we shall see him, John says in 1 John 3, and we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. The reign of sin and of Satan is ended. The smoke goes up forever and ever. That does not celebrate ongoing air pollution. This is an idiomatic expression. It's a poetic way of saying that which has been destroyed will never rise again. It is done. It is finished. It will no more ever be seen. There is no recovery for the, for the relentless ongoing rebellion that is represented in Babel to Babylon. It is done. It is finished. It will never be revived again. You know, you and I also praise the praise of heaven. When we trust God's strength and salvation and seek his glory instead of our own, when, I, when we agree with God that we are not strong enough, that we need his salvation in, in place of our efforts, 
that we need his son Jesus who died for us. When we, when we look to his glory rather than our own advancement, when we trust his power and his authority instead of our own futile strength, when we are willing, in fact, to forgive a wrong or when we're willing to lay aside a grudge and trust God's judgment in the future instead of seeking our own vengeance. In so doing, we also raise the praise of heaven. We sing heaven's song. We leave it to God in his day rather than trying to bring it about ourselves in this day. The 24 elders, the four living creatures that are gathered around the throne, they make a cameo appearance in verse 4. We don't see much of them except they say, Amen. I think there's something of a, finally, in that. We saw them in chapter 4, remember? In chapter 4 and chapter 5, and there the concern was this. There was no one found worthy who could take the scroll from he who sat upon the throne. There was none who was worthy to open its seals and bring about the judgment upon the earth that was needed in order to restore things to how they must be. And then, behold, the Lamb of God, the tribe of Judah, The Lamb is worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, to commence judgment. Why is he worthy when none else is to be found? The Lamb of God is worthy because he first bore that judgment upon himself for all and any who would believe him. For all who would say, God, I believe you. Concerning Jesus, your son, who came in my place and died for my guilt to restore me into right relationship with you, if I only believe and trust him for that. For all who believe God concerning Jesus, it's been done for us. He is worthy. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures remind us of that heavenly council that longed for this day and now this day has come. Messiah's kingdom has come. The Lord our God, the Almighty reigns, verse 6. Did you know, heaven's prayer is, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now heaven could forget about earth, could they not? Heaven could just say, man, that place is a mess, kind of like my view of... Portland? I just don't go there anymore. That took all the fun out of it. It's a mess. And yet I grieve for people in the midst of the mess. Things are not as they ought to be. And, but heaven has a bigger heart than I do, I think. Heaven is not only happy to live in the glorious presence of God and His Son, but they long for the will of God, thy will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. They long for the kingdoms of this world to become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. And so your prayer, think of it, your prayer is heaven's prayer. Even the angels long to see the fullness of God's restoration played out on this rebellious planet and people. And the church, the church in verses 7 and 8, will finally experience the fullness of our restoration. 
We nibble around the edges of a now, indwelled by His Spirit to walk in His will. We nibble around the edges of experiencing this renewed, restored relationship with God. And yet now, as Paul describes in Romans, or 1 Corinthians 13, we look through a glass dimly. And we long for the face-to-face. We long to see the full realization of it. We have been given the earnest, the down payment According to Ephesians 1, in the Holy Spirit who indwells us, but don't we long for the fullness of it? Don't we long for the time when all that's wrong will be made right even within us? We have been saved from the penalty of sin in Jesus' death in our place. We are being saved, in fact, even from the ruling power of sin over us, that we have the power by God's Spirit to walk in newness of life. And yet, don't you long? For deliverance from even the presence of sin, not only around you, but with you. Don't you long for that? And that will be realized. The marriage of the Lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready and has given her now. It's granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. The righteous deeds of the saints. The, the bride is presented Glorious, without any spot or wrinkle. We long for that experience. And then there's this beatitude. There are four beatitudes in the book of the Revelation. Four times where it says, blessed are they. The first one is in chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed are those who hear the words of this book. Blessed are those who read and those who hear And then it says in chapter 14, blessed are those who die in the Lord. That seems a strange one, but it's not unlike Jesus' other Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 when you think about it, the poor, those who mourn, the meek or the weak. Blessed are those who die in the Lord, they will be vindicated. In chapter 22, in verse 14, it's going to say, blessed are those whose robes have been made white who have been given the right to the tree of life because they are forgiven and restored in Jesus. And that's the same blessing that's given here. Blessed are those who were invited to the marriage banquet of the Lamb, as I described with the kids. And who is invited? Well, Actually, we're all invited. The question is, who will come? Do you remember the parable in the Gospels where the king has a banquet? The king has a marriage banquet and the usual guests have been invited and they don't show. They're too busy. They got this going on. Not really interested right now. Not really a priority for me. And he says, my banquet will not be empty. Go out into not only the highways, but the byways. Not only the main streets, but the dirt roads. Not only downtown, but the back country. And go and invite those people you'd never think to invite. That's who's going to be at the center of my banquet. And there's room at his table for me. And there's room at his table for you. It's not a matter of who's invited. It's a matter of who will, who will respond. Who will receive. Who will believe and say, yes, God, I believe you. Concerning, I, I love expressing the gospel that way. Had a chance with some friends, with, with, with some family we were visiting and um, talking about uh, this and that related around the gospel. And it came up and, and I said, well, you know, what I, what I share with the church real regularly is this. I didn't put anybody on the spot. I didn't want to put anybody on the spot. 
I just said, you know, the question is this. Will you believe God concerning his son? That God's son, Jesus, came and died in our place for our guilt. That because of his death in our place, we would be restored into right relationship with God by believing God that his son did that for us. That's all that is required. To believe on Jesus as the one who died in my place for my guilt to restore me. I believe God concerning Jesus. And he has given us, on that basis, eternal life and entrance into his banquet. Heaven has a party, and you're invited. Our true hope, you see, is in his future blessing. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage banquet. Our true hope is not in better circumstances in the present. Our true hope is in God's glorious future. That's why we worship. Even today, we worship by believing God's beatitudes. We worship by believing our Lord Jesus when he says, Blessed are the poor. Really? Well, that's not the logic of this world. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom. Rather than seeking wealth, invest in God's future. This is why even when we don't have much, we will still give for God's purposes for his kingdom, for his future. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Maybe not now, maybe not yet, but we do not grieve as those who have no hope because we have hope in God's promise for a future that is eternal, a hope that goes beyond the grave, that is eternal in the heavens, and even having lost one dear to us, our hope is in God who raises the dead. And who will raise us as well with them in him. Blessed are the meek, the powerless, for they will inherit the earth. So we will be salt and light, but we don't expect to make it okay in the present. We rather look to God's future. What we need, I love the political season because it gives me plenty of opportunity to say, you know, I had this another conversation with some family a couple weeks ago. And politics entered in and one and some 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 um, Tension between some of my family members, extended family, because of uh, different political views. And I said, and uh, wanting me to weigh in, okay, now which side is Bob going to land on? I said, I chose, I chose the higher ground. I said, you know, my, my take on politics is what we really need is a good king. The problem is that there, there are no good kings out there at the present. You know, the problem with our government is those who govern and the people whom they govern, Right? What we need is a good king, but there's none to be had, but the good king is coming. That's the answer. That's what we long for. We'll participate as best we can in the present, in the mess that it is, but the answer is not how the election goes. What we need is a good king, and God's word says he's coming. So that's where we will put our focus for the future. Blessed are those who hunger for righteousness, for they shall be filled. The church will realize the fullness that he has for us. Do not be discouraged when you stumble, when you fail, when you falter, when you give into that temptation. Own it quickly. Keep short accounts. Go before your Lord in confession. Agree with God that sin is sin. And he, he says that when we confess our sin, he is faithful and just. Don't hang that around your neck that makes you unworthy and causes you to have to hang out there at the fringes. 
Confess it before your Savior and call it forgiven and gone. As far as the east is from the west, so has he removed our transgressions from us. I have to live in that every day, church. All of us do. And we must, we should, we need to. And yet, when we're reminded of our stumbling, when we're reminded of our failure, long for the day when all of that will be gone and we'll be like him. Blessed are the persecuted, even. Blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom. Jesus was persecuted, too. They rejected him, but God raised him. Above every name that is named, so at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we are with him. Heaven sings, and we join in that song. We anticipate that glorious future, and we anticipate the coming of the rightful king. And we turn to it in verse 11, and there's the moment, there's the excitement. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the horse is not the big deal at all, but the one sitting on it who is called Faithful and True. Faithful and true because it's in righteousness that he judges and makes war. It's in in righteousness and justice, true and faithful in all that he does. Corruption free, which will be a brand new thing on planet earth. What we need is a good king. He is the one who sees all, who misses nothing. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. On his name, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. What's that all about? Why is Jesus' name a secret? I thought we all knew his name was Jesus. The name written that nobody knows is nobody can call him. Nobody can hold him to account. Nobody has any ownership over him. He is absolutely king. And he sees all. He misses nothing. And we think of that typically in terms of judgment. And as we do, that should make us a little nervous. It shouldn't scare you because you are forgiven in Jesus if you believe in him. If you don't believe in him, it should scare you. He misses nothing. I mean, this is the ultimate Superman penetrating eyesight, right? He can see through anything. He knows the hidden secrets of my heart. He knows all the stuff that you don't know and don't want to know. And that could terrify me or I could rest in the reality that he knows all of it and yet he loves me and died for me. There's nothing you know about yourself that Jesus doesn't know. And yet he loved us, John says, and gave himself for us. That ought to encourage and strengthen your heart. He sees it all. He sees, he, he's, he sees the sacrifices. He sees the unrecognized giving of yourself for the sake of others that nobody else knows nor celebrates. And yet God is not unjust to forget, to overlook your work and labor of love. He sees it all. His glory is heightened by his merciful redemption. Look at verse 13. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Now that seems a little strange. You'd think for this grand moment, couldn't they have gotten the king a new robe? 
No, 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 no. And we think of this and we think, yeah, his robe is dipped in bread, blood because he's going, to, he's going to trample the winepress of the wrath of God. And if you trample a winepress wearing a robe, you get the juice splattered up onto your robe. But he hasn't done that yet. The battle hasn't commenced. The blood has not yet been shed in his coming. And yet there is already the blood sprinkled on his robe. What blood is that? I would suggest, because of the timing, I would suggest it's his blood for us. It is what makes him worthy of the judgment that will commence. The final and ultimate judgment, he is worthy to do so. Because first, his blood sprinkled, covered, cleansed, forgave our guilt. He, first, he took the judgment upon himself before any judgment comes to any other. And he brings us to share in his, in his triumph. Look at verse 14. The armies of heaven array, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And who, are, who is in these armies? Commentators go one way or another. These are, these are the angelic hosts of heaven coming with the Lord to, to do battle with him. These are the saints who are clothed in, in, in bright linen, fine and pure, white and pure. See, both the saints and angels are described clothed in this way through the book of Revelation. So we're kind of at a loss as to which is it. I would suggest to you it's actually both. It's the return of the redeemed saints and the angelic hosts of heaven in one grand triumph, it's called. In the Roman world, in the first century, there would be this triumphal procession with the conquering king or general at the head and, and the victorious party, the victorious forces following after them. And they have conquered, they have overcome by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of his testimony, and that they did not love this present life more than God's future. They have overcome. We, the saints, are part of that conquering. And the conquering is not merely in a moment in the future. The conquering continues through this age and day when we believe God instead of the lie around us. We believe God concerning his son, and we believe God concerning what matters and what does not. We believe God concerning what's right and what's wrong. And we follow in his truth. He shares us. He brings us. He lifts us to share in his triumph. And his word has all authority. Look at verses 15 and 16. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of kings and Lord of lords. His word is the word of the King of kings and Lord of lords. He comes and by his word he ends all rebellion. Look at verse 21. And the rest, all of the kings and the armies gathered together against the Lord at his appearing, all of them were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. One sword takes them all because it is not actually a sword cutting them down at all. It is simply the word of his mouth. It is the breath that utters forth in divine command. Even as God spoke in Genesis chapter 1, 
and brought light from darkness, brought order out of nothing, so he will do it again. The darkness will be ended. The light has come. The chaos is over. Order and beauty has been restored. And it will be done the same way. There is no battle. The kings of the earth arm themselves and gather together in vain futility because all he does is speak the word. And it's done. It's over. And it's described in a strange picture here at the end. Look at verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. With a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all the men, both free and slave, small and great. And then the beast and the kings of the earth, they rally together and they're wiped out. The beast is captured in verse 20. And verse 21 ends again. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. What is this a weird way to end this wonderfully glorious chapter? The vultures feeding on this feast of human carrion. Imagine all of these bodies laying out there, rotting in the sun, and the stench is rising up. What a awful, gruesome picture to end this glorious note. I mean, who's going to clean all that up? Well, the birds, apparently, right? But this is a first century meme. What is the angel saying? The angel is simply saying, the vultures are circling. And they knew what it meant. We know what it meant. Let me give you examples of some current memes gathered around the idea that the vultures are circling. There's the first one. There's been a car crash, and the vultures are circling, right? Yeah. Yeah, can you tell me the difference between a lawyer and a vulture? Yeah, me neither. Okay. <laughs> the vultures are circling. This is back in 2014 NFL season, but I, I, I apologize to any lawyers in the room or in the video. I just, we're just, I'm just taking a cheap shot there where there's one to be had. The season wasn't going well for the Chicago Bears then. Or now. But, um, the, and, and so the vultures are circling. He was wishing for a different bird, but the vultures are circling. That's the point. There's several NFL coaches that are in this season or in the same boat. They can identify with that. Let's look at another one. This one some of you might identify with. I'm not saying we're getting old, but we shouldn't stand in one place for too long. <laughs> Do you feel like it sometimes that the vultures are circling? That's what, where, where, did they, where did they get that? Why does John, why, why is the angel saying it that way? Jesus used the same idiom. Jesus used the same image. When, when the disciples have been so enamored by the greatness of the temple that Herod, of all people, built, and Jesus says, you know, guys, don't get too carried away by this. The, not, the day is coming when not one stone is going to be left upon another. They're like, really? Wow, things are really going to change. Messiah's going to come and everything's going to be renewed. Wow. And so they're sitting on the Mount of Olives. And they're looking down across at, at, at Jerusalem and at the temple and uh, the temple mount there and the courtyards. And they ask Jesus, what is going to be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? And he answers them. And he gives a description of that in Matthew 24. And he closes with, as the lightning shines from the east all the way to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Nobody's going to miss the appearance of his glory. It'll be obvious across the sky, 
all the world will see it. He said, and then he adds this very strange line. For where the carcass is, there the vultures or birds will be gathered. That's odd. What is he saying? Where there is corruption, that's where the vultures will be. You know when there's, a, when there's a, a body out on the desert floor, there are going to be birds circling overhead. They're not circling in some random spot. They're circling where the rot and decay and corruption is. And so God says, where there is rot and decay and corruption, that is where his judgment must come. So, we look around at the world today and we wonder, where is the promise of his coming? How long, O oh Lord? And yet the corruption around us cries out and raises a stench to heaven that God will answer. Folks, the vultures are circling. I invite you to use that line. When somebody's talking or complaining about the situation as things are, what a mess it is, say, yeah, the vultures are circling. But Revelation says that, or Jesus said in Matthew 24, that the vultures circling, that, that the corruption that is so rampant is only a guarantee that God's judgment must and will come. The evil, the darkness of the hour reminds us that the dawn is at hand. Jesus is coming, and he will reign. People around us are focusing on that mess then. Say, yeah, yeah. The vultures are circling. But Jesus is coming to set it right. How the chapter began is true today. Salvation, glory, authority belong to God and to the Lamb who sits on the throne. And his salvation, the salvation that belongs to him, by his power, on his authority, that salvation is offered to you and I. And that is our message to a world around us in desperate need. That's the message you'll carry into the week. And now as we pray, Father, as we live out your victory, your newness of life around us, believing indeed, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. We do have a hope. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We'll not follow evil. And as we live in those beatitudes, we will join in heaven's praise in ways that people around us need to see. Would you pray with me? Father, we do thank you that you have reminded us of your future. Father, we pray that, Lord, you would help us to live in this hope in the midst of the brokenness around us because others need to know of your invitation and others within your church need to be strengthened for your future. So Lord, help us to do that. Help us to look to your promise, the sureness of your words, to rely on the salvation that belongs to our God. Let us, Father, join the praise of heaven, not only in our song, but in our life and our choices. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.